The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. Folks, it is great to be back. It is Tuesday evening going into Wednesday morning. I decided to take yesterday off. That was Monday. And the reason I did that, folks, is I just have so much stuff to finish doing for Christmas. I'm baking loaves of bread for some baskets my wife and I are putting together for some local friends of ours. And so we got a bunch of jams and jellies from Farmer Carol over at Sycamore Spring Farm. And so I'm putting bread in there. And then Maggie and her mom visiting here from Poland, they baked a bunch of homemade Christmas cookies using a Polish dough yesterday. And they were icing them today, and they look fantastic. I mean, honestly, they look beautiful. So those are going to be in there in the basket. We're going to put some Polish candies in there. So I'm trying to get that done. On top of it, you know, it's Willie's first Christmas. He won't remember it. So I got him a few things. Maggie got him a few things. So I've been getting those wrapped up. And then for my family... I mentioned this before, but everyone wanted to take pictures with Willie when they saw him over Thanksgiving, so I had to get that stuff printed up, and nowadays it's not so easy to go get photos printed. Uh, You can get them printed online at Shutterfly and such, but then they showed up screwed up, folks, like our Christmas card. Uh, you know, a half inch was cut off on the left side and it went right into the Merry Christmas graphic. So I decided, let me complain to Shutterfly. I did. And so Shutterfly is giving us 50 free cards next year because they were going to replace them. But by the time I got them, they wouldn't be here till Friday. And I had to sit around on Sunday and yesterday and finish up the Christmas cards, which is part of why I took yesterday off because I ended up at the post office for two hours trying to ship a couple of boxes and 50 cards i mean it was nuts ladies and gentlemen nuts so i ended up running around and walgreens printing uh service was uh it's gone cvs theirs was broken i finally went over to walmart i used to use costco for many years but costco doesn't do photo printing anymore and there's no more private independently owned photo printing shops around this area so what a mess that was folks so anyway i had to get that stuff printed and then i bought some nice frames at Home goods kind of matching the different style of people's homes. You know, Willie's grandma, grandpa, stuff like that. And so I've been framing that stuff up. And then I've been working on this beautiful collage for Maggie that actually documents from the moment I bought the pregnancy test at the store in mid-February to uh, yesterday. So it's got all these different photos. So I think I'm safe because Staples could print that poster up and I have a big, nice frame for it. And so uh, that's Maggie's kind of big gift. It took me a lot of time. I probably got 15 hours into editing that together, but it's really nice. And obviously one day Willie will probably take it. So it was worth the time to do. And I got to go through all these photos of everything Maggie and I have done over the last year while we were walking around with Willie still in her tummy. And it was bringing tears to my eyes because I 
forgot about everything we did in Poland and on Easter when we went to visit my father and the baby shower, all these different things we did this past year. So it was great, folks. So I had to take yesterday off and it was coming off a big show we did on Sunday night with Dan Golvach, episode 115, three-hour interview, folks. People have been reaching out on Twitter, on pain.tv slash gold via email over at gold at pain.tv, thanking me for the interview. Now, Dan Golvach has been on a couple of times before we recorded episode 115, but 115, I guess, people really liked it. Uh, we talked about the dark underbelly that drives the technocrats, the transhumanists, the central bank mafia, these economic terrorists, all these folks. And then we talked about the light. We talked about God. I I mentioned spirituality and stuff here a little bit, but I don't really want to push religion on people. Although moving forward, I think because of the birth of our son, and I think because the more I research and the darker all of this seems to be. And in my mind, I'm starting to realize that what's coming is inevitable because there's no one really fighting back. And the biggest pushback we're going to be able to make is in our own personal lives. And that's preparing for it, prepping for it, insulating ourselves from it, separating ourselves from densely populated areas starting to congregate with like-minded folks i think that's the realistic solution as of right now for me anyway and so as i start to realize the more i research and i've only covered so much here folks eventually you'll see it gets darker and darker is that i've got to introduce some light to this so i am going to try to bring dan on regularly um, as long as his schedule permits, to have these type of discussions. Because I've known Dan going back to 2018, I believe. And him and I text back and forth a lot uh, over the years, not, not just on politics and on technocracy. He was there for me when I was going through my divorce. He was there as a friend when I met Maggie. He was there... Last Christmas when Maggie and I met up with him and had dinner, you know, he's been there throughout my life. And Dan is a big believer in God and Christ. And that is what has helped him get through the unfortunate and despicable murder of his son, Spencer. And so I've kind of looked at Dan as a spiritual guide for me over the years, whether he knows that or not, uh, I don't know. I think I might have called him once or twice with a few drinks in me uh, back when I used to drink before I met Maggie when I was going through my divorce and shared those thoughts with Dan. So I think he knows. I, I, I really love him. I think he's a fantastic person. And so I think we're going to bring him on on a more regular basis to talk about spirituality and be able to connect what's going on with the technocrats and the transhumanists into uh, the darkness, uh, the dark side of spirituality that they practice, and then you know more about the light that we have to align with. I'm not going to turn this into a uh, religious program, but I think we need a little bit of that hope. I talk about how this is a war on humanity, and once you remove God, 
mother nature or the creator the natural world from the equation it allows the technocrats and the transhumanists to push uh, their agenda into place so if i'm going to talk about it and mention that i might as well start to have more discussions on the topic and that's fine with me i i think it's important and so hopefully you guys will uh, find that interesting as well ladies and gentlemen so i hope everyone is uh, having a wonderful christmas season so far dan said it's stressmas that's how he looks at it because you're scrounging together money for presents at the same time starting to figure out how much money you're gonna have to spend next year in taxes when you owe the tax man especially if you work for yourself so i get it it is stressful but it should be joyous it should be about family so we're gonna try to bring a smile to as many people's faces as possible here in our personal life so i hope you do that as well i hope you have a great time as i've said before whether you want to spend that with family or friends or you're someone who just wants to be alone whatever it is put a smile on your face i hope you're happy this christmas season ladies and gentlemen and i hope you all have a wonderful 2023 i know it seems like it's going to be difficult i know a lot of this stuff is coming our way I know the future looks bleak, but you should focus on writing down your goals. Your goals for the new year should be to have your goals in place. Now that you know what's coming, if you've listened to all 116 episodes here at the Dust and Gold Standard, and your goals should be big. Start to think about what you want to do. Are you going to hunker down where you are and try to resist as much as possible? Are you going to try to flee to a homestead? Are you going to try to get a group of people together and build a community? Are you going to start to find organic food sources from local farmers, uh, people that raise cattle, butchers, and such? Are you going to start to move your investments, if you have any, around and put them into... um, into different places than they are now maybe pull it out of wall street maybe move it out of your 401k your ira you're going to do all these types of things and so i think that's the plan i think 2023 we have to be ready because as we inch closer to 25 and to 30 we're going to see more of the plans of the technocrats come into fruition they have these goals in place they probably will reach the majority of their goals and so we have to figure out what we're going to do in our little lives to resist as much as possible and to insulate ourselves from what is to come so we're going to talk a lot about that as we move into 2023 and try to help people guide themselves towards better solutions towards the goals that they create all right folks i talked to wide awake jim not on the phone we went back and forth with text he finished sending me the rest of his documents and i think he's going to come on next week we're going to start to lay down these interviews between christmas and new year since it'll be slow for most people and we are going to start putting that stuff together and getting it out to you we're going to tie in everything he has with everything we covered between episodes like 96 and 115 really with dad and we're going to show you the rest of what uh what comes with central bank digital currency and start to make predictions on the rollout of that so you can start to prepare what i am going to do tonight here folks in episode 116 is we're going to start working on saul alinsky i was going to hold off for about another 25 episodes but since we brought up saul alinsky in the interview with dan Golvach. 
he came up a couple of times. I decided that I want to bring Alinsky in during this Christmas season, ladies and gentlemen, because Alinsky was such a joyous figure. No, he actually was not. But um, I had mentioned with Dan, I studied Saul Alinsky going back, I think it was 2011, 2012. And I had watched every video, interview, documentary on Alinsky that I could get my hands on. I read his uh, two famous books, Reveille for Radicals and Rules for Radicals. I studied his tactics. I actually was working on packaging up Alinsky tactics and was trying to convince Republican town committees, as naive as I was, Republican town committees in the state of Connecticut as well uh, as in uh, other places where I was speaking at the time, I used to speak at some groups in New York City and such, to start to use Alinsky tactics to push forward conservative values. Of course, back then, I was not as nuanced as I am today. I didn't fully understand uh, what I was doing. I didn't understand what the world actually uh, looked like. I, did, I didn't have as well-rounded view as I do today. And so I want to look at Alinsky through new eyes. Uh, now that I've been studying technocracy and transhumanism more, now that we've gone back to the progressive era of the late 1800s and we've looked at eugenics, we're starting to look at the formation of the Federal Reserve banking system, all in and around eugenics and technocracy. I want to restudy Saul Alinsky because he is a very interesting character. I hated him at the time I was studying him, but there was something about him uh, that drew me in. As weird as he is, as creepy as he is, something drew me in. And so I want to look at Alinsky through a new lens. Uh, and I want to break down everything right here on the Dustin Gold Standard. Last night, I started actually pulling up some articles and videos and trying to refresh myself on Alinsky. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to do this over three or four episodes because I spent probably three, four months of my life going back almost 10 years ago, probably 10 years ago, uh, studying Alinsky, that I might as well share that research with you folks. And let's start to look at him, because there were people talking about back in the days of Saul Alinsky that he was actually against the technocracy, yet he was also at the same time accused of being a communist and then most people's view of alinsky if you're aware of him today came from either 2008 uh, presidential campaign of barack obama his ties to hillary clinton and so a lot of people were introduced to alinsky through that way glenn beck used to talk about saul alinsky and when i dug in him back then i said there's so much more to this guy now do i think at the end of the day that alinsky was a net plus or a net minus on society and culture he would be a net minus in my view starting where we are right now but let's see if our opinion or my opinion changes on saul alinsky as we go 
further into this analysis on the life and the work of Saul Linsky. I think it's going to be a very interesting series. And I did not bullet point this out. I did not plan this out. I'm going to go where the information takes us on this one. This is going to be sort of a real-time research project on Saul Alinsky, and we're going to learn about him, his message. We're going to make a decision if we think he was really doing this for good or he was doing it for evil. And then we're going to look at if he thinks he was doing it for good, where his where he was wrong, where he was actually pulled towards darkness instead of pulled towards light. So when I get back, ladies and gentlemen, let's start with the rules for radicals, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's just um, let's just look at Wikipedia quick, give a quick background. I, I would assume, I would assume the majority of you listening to this show probably have been focused on politics, at least going back to 2015, the run of Donald Trump for president. And some of you, I know, go all the way back to the Glenn Beck days when he was on Fox. Even before that, he was on HLN News. I mean, maybe you were watching The Blaze, Glenn Beck TV. Maybe some of you are new to all of this. So I have to go back a little bit and pretend you know nothing about Saul Linsky. So let's just give you the Wikipedia biography on Saul Linsky, and then we're going to look at the 13 rules uh, from his book, Rules for Radicals. We're going to start there, and then I'm going to introduce you to an article from 2012, basically how I was introduced to Saul Linsky, and from there, we're going to branch out all over the place. I have a video queued up here called I Would uh, Organize Hell. It was an interview with Saul Linsky. It's a good introduction to his personality. And we're going to eventually work our way into analyzing this Canadian Film Board documentary series that followed around Saul Linsky. Because I want to show you how he interacted with young folks and disenfranchised folks and people that were feeling very weak at the time and how, in my eyes, at least the way I saw it years ago when I analyzed it for the first time on another podcast, I saw him as being very manipulative. And so, again, I want to look at this through a new lens. I'm doing some research into Alinsky's connections. Was he tied into any of the technocrats? Was he tied into to any of the uh, people connected to the transhumanist movement. So I'm looking at this again through a new lens now, and I want to figure out where he fits in, what part he played, and what we're dealing with today in the present, okay, and what we are looking at in the future and see if Saul Linsky unlocks any mysteries 
for us. All right, so it says here, Saul David Alinsky. He was born January 30th, 1909, and he died June 12th, 1972. He was an American community activist and political theorist. His work through the Chicago-based Industrial Areas Foundation helping poor communities organize to press demands upon landlords, politicians, bankers, and business leaders, won him national recognition and notoriety. Responding to the impatience of a new left generation of activists in the 1960s, in his widely cited Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer, written in 1971, which was a year before he died, Alinsky defended the arts both of confrontation and of compromise involved in community organizing as keys to the struggle for social justice. Now, one of the things you're definitely going to see and I'm going to point this out many times throughout this series, is he is very hypocritical. There are things he will say in one sentence, and then the next sentence will actually contradict himself. Almost like Donald Trump, right? Sololinsky is a horrible guy, one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. So great, so soft-spoken, so brash, and so stupid. I mean, so you'll see this in Alinsky. And sometimes it makes me wonder, was Alinsky just an opportunist? He was connected to the Chicago mob. You'll see that in the research we do. Was he an opportunist? Was he a criminal? Was he promising people things Uh, The poor folks that he claimed to be helping, was he just preying on them? Was he an opportunist or did he serve a larger purpose? Was there any good that Saul Linsky did or was it all bad? I will show you that he has infected generation upon generation of folks with his ideology. And one of the ideologies we're going to focus on is this uh, political theory of progressivism in which there's really no end goal. It's just a constant struggle. And what happens when there is no goal, eventually society ends up eating itself alive. The uh, leftist movement that he claimed to be leading ends up eating itself alive. It creates chaos. And from chaos, obviously comes order and from order you generally have the rise of some sort of a totalitarian state or a dictatorial figure so did alinsky serve that purpose i i think it's very important to talk about this right now because i don't know about 20 25 episodes ago we were covering howard scott the founder of technocracy incorporated coming out of the 1920s and 1930s and howard scott is sort of this mysterious character who pops onto the scene and the next thing you know, he's leading the blueprinting of the technocracy that we see in the works today. And Alinsky uh, is similar to that. Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays, actually pointed that out to me when I was doing the Howard Scott series. She said, wow, who was running Howard Scott? You know, who was running Saul Alinsky? She said, you studied Alinsky 
uh, in depth in the past, you know, are there any connections to the type of people behind them? So we're going to eventually look at this. I mean, if he was just an opportunist, I don't know how he lasted so long. I think the powers of be would have shut him down. So he must have served a larger purpose. And so we're going to hopefully get to that in the research that we do here. Let's continue. It says, beginning in the 1990s, Alinsky's reputation was reviewed by commentators on the political right as a source of tactical inspiration for the Republican Tea Party movement and subsequently by virtue of indirect associations with both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama as the alleged source of a radical democratic political agenda. While criticized on the political left for an aversion to broad ideological goals, Alinsky has been identified as an inspiration for the Occupy movement and campaigns for climate change. Okay, so remember, when I studied Alinsky before, I was looking at him through the lens of conservatism. I was a devout conservative. I thought I was what you know, some would call a constitutional conservative and saw Alinsky as someone who helped to destroy the culture here in the United States. Now, if that is all he did and that was his purpose or why he was allowed to exist and gain so much notoriety in the press back then, that makes a lot of sense because you had to destroy destroy American culture, the traditional family, all of these things in order to get to where we are today, right? In order to accept the culture of technocracy and this exponential growth of technology into our lives. You had to destroy culture and traditional values in order to do that. We'll eventually go back. Uh, many of you may have studied this, but we're eventually going to look at the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism again. A lot of this we have to recover uh, because it'll show us how we got to where we are today. You can't just usher in full-blown police state, prison planet, matrix technocracy without destroying destroying the culture first. So if that's all Alinsky did, if that was his only purpose, then that would make a lot of sense. And that may be the conclusion that we reach. All right, let me just give you a little bit on his childhood. Saul Alinsky was born in 1909 in Chicago, Illinois, to Russian Jewish immigrant parents. The only surviving son of Benjamin Alinsky's marriage to his second wife, Sarah Tannenbaum Alinsky. His father started out as a tailor, then ran a delicatessen and a cleaning shop. Both parents were strict Orthodox. Alinsky describes himself as being devout until the age of 12, the point at which he began to fear his parents would force him to become a rabbi. Although he had, quote, not personally, end quote, encountered, quote, much anti-Semitism as a child, end quote, Alinsky recalled that it, quote, was so pervasive, you just accepted it as a fact of life, end quote. Called up for retaliating against some Polish boys, Alinsky acknowledged one rabbinical lesson that, quote, sank home, end quote. Quote, it's the American way. Um, Old Testament, they beat us up, so we beat the hell out of them. That's what everybody does, end quote. The rabbi looked at him for a moment and said quietly, quote, you think you're a man because you do what everybody else does, but I want to tell you something great, where there are no men, be thou a man, end quote. Alinsky considered himself an agnostic, but when asked about his religion, would, quote, always say Jewish, end quote. 
All right, so you'll see that in some of the interviews as well. Alinsky talks about some of this, and you have to put it in context because these interviews uh, range from like the 1950s, 60s, uh, early 70s. Let's look at his college studies. It says in 1926, we're just laying the foundation here. So as I start to read uh, from some passages of his books and talk about some specific uh, organizing activities he was involved with, you will be able to... uh, to have an understanding of who we're talking about, where this guy came from. And and I will say back in, okay, I actually studied Alinsky. Now it's coming to me. I studied him probably in 2007 because I utilized some of his tactics when I was organizing the union, the trade union at Yale University to fight back against illegal immigration in the city of New Haven. This is actually when I started studying him, and then he came up and was more widely known in 2007 and 8 with his ties to Barack Obama and the Barack Obama presidential race. Okay, so it, it was interesting because I had started studying him as someone who was a conservative, and I was studying his tactics because I used to try to tell Republican town committees and conservatives as a young person at 27, 28, I was willing to fight. I looked at the other side, the Democrats, the left at the time, as communists and believed they were trying to destroy my country. I looked at them as wanting open borders. I was totally into the WWE wrestling, but I believed that they were my enemy. And so all Uh, means would justify my ends and my ends were to win and to stop everything that i believed that they were doing that was unconstitutional and against our values and our morals our principles and laws here in the united states so i was willing to use uh, extremist tactics even taken from alinsky on the left in order to defeat them because i knew that they were using them against us ladies and gentlemen all right when i get back let's get into his college studies and then i'm going to go over his 13 rules and then we'll start to go in some different directions here ladies and gentlemen we dissect the very complicated the very colorful character saul alinsky my name is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold and this is Pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, and in case any of you are asking, if you're just tuning into the Dustin Gold Standard for the first time or have listened to a few episodes, no, I am not Jewish. My last name really is Gold. Okay, so I grew up Protestant. My mother's mom, my grandmother, was from Japan. My mother's father was scottish irish english his family had settled here hundreds of years ago and he served in the army and during the korea war he was stationed in japan uh 
And so he met my grandmother, who was a librarian on an army base, a U.S. Army base, and then brought her back to the United States. My mother was raised Protestant. I was raised Protestant. My father's mother was Italian and Catholic. My father's father, his family came from Austria, and they were Jewish, but he was secular. And so my father was raised with both Jewish and Catholic traditions. And eventually, I think he told me he was, I don't know, six or seven years old, his parents finally said, you need to pick whether you're celebrating Hanukkah or Christmas. I believe he picked Christmas. So anyway, during my life, uh, going to church every Sunday with my mother until I was about, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. And then as I got older and would sleep over a friend's house, I would go to the Catholic church a lot because a lot of my friends were Catholic. So if I slept over on a Saturday night, their parents made us go to uh, church with them. But I used to go to church every Sunday. And I believe, uh, based on my memory, my father probably went to church with us a total of about nine times. They were probably all Christmas Eve services of which i'm going to one with uh, maggie and willie g at a little church we found she grew up catholic in poland but we found uh, a little i think a presbyterian church or something we're going to go to and bring willie for his first uh, christmas eve service ladies and gentlemen so in case you're asking no i did not grow up uh, jewish i'm not jewish i don't uh, identify as jewish although i should i'd probably have a lot more money if i did folks if i did and if i sat here and i cheered on the actions of uh, israel i'd probably move up the rankings on this show make a lot of money and then complain that i'm being attacked and anti-Semitism, this and that. But no, I, you know, so yes, I'm a quarter uh, Jewish, but according to the Jews, I wouldn't be anyway because my mother is not Jewish. So the Orthodox Jews wouldn't really even recognize me as uh, Jewish. Even if I converted, I wouldn't be technically in the tribe, as they would say, in the tribe. Just so you know, because uh, in the world of politics and political commentary, I think you got to make that clear, and I forget to do that so people don't think I'm some uh, Israeli Mossad agent or anything like that, folks. No. Uh, all right, let's continue into Alinsky's college studies. It says in 1926, Alinsky entered the University of Chicago. He studied in America's first uh, sociology department under Ernest uh, Burgess and Robert E. Park. Overturning the propositions of a still ascendant eugenics movement, Burgess and Park argued that social disorganization, not heredity, was the cause of disease, crime, and other characteristics of slum life. As the passage of successive waves of immigrants through such districts had demonstrated, it is the slum area itself and not the particular group living there with which social pathologies were associated. Yet Alinsky claimed to be unimpressed what, quote, the sociologists were handing out about poverty and slums, end quote, quote, playing down the suffering and deprivation, glossing over the misery, end quote, was, quote, horse manure, end quote. So it'd be interesting to take a look at uh, this stuff here, since obviously these uh, professors were coming out of the eugenic movement there. 
goes on to say the Great Depression put an end to interest in archaeology. After the stock market crash, quote, all the guys who funded the field trips were being scraped off Wall Street sidewalks, end quote. A chance uh, graduate fellowship moved Alinsky on to criminology. For two years as a, quote, non-participant observer, quote, he claims to have hung out with Chicago's Al Capone mob. He explains that as they, quote, owned the city, end quote, they felt they had little to hide from, quote, a college kid, end quote. Among other things about the exercise of power, he says they taught him was the, quote, the terrific importance of personal relationships, end quote. Alinsky took a job with the Illinois State Division of Criminology working with juvenile delinquents and at the Juliet State Penitentiary. He recalls it as a dispiriting experience. If he dwelt on the contributing causes of crime, such as poor housing, racial discrimination, or unemployment, he was labeled, quote, a red, end quote. All right, so if he was talking about these things, I told you, Alinsky is a very complicated character because I think as a lot of us are starting to look at the world through new eyes now now that we've gotten over 2015 to this point in our history we're able to look at things through a new lens and so you'd say okay he's in there trying to organize the poor he's trying to end poverty he's trying to teach these people how to stand up to themselves for themselves trying to organize them against corporations trying to teach them how to stand up to government stand up to injustice you'd say well that's not such a bad thing maybe before i would poo poo something like that but maybe it's not so bad but you're gonna see he was also very manipulative uh i mean maybe and and i'll be honest if i see it through new eyes as we start to review this i'll point it out and say wow i see this differently than i did 10 years ago but you're gonna see how he manipulates people i think i'm still gonna see it that way if i remember it clearly in my head All right, let's look at his uh, community organizing. Again, we're still over here at Wikipedia. I'm going to break some of this down, and we're going to get into a few articles that I have before we start to look at this interview with Saul Linsky. It says the uh, the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council. All right, and he was very famous for this. It says, in 1938, Alinsky gave up his last employment at the Institute for Juvenile Research, University of Illinois at Chicago, to devote himself full-time as a political activist in his free time he had been raising funds for the international brigade organized by the communist international in the spanish civil war and for southern sharecroppers organizing for the newspaper guild and other fledgling unions fighting evictions and agitating for public housing he also began to work alongside the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and its president, John L. Lewis, in an unauthorized biography of the labor leader. Alinsky wrote that he later mediated between Lewis and President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the White House. Okay, so that was a, another book that Alinsky wrote. It was this unauthorized, sort of unofficial biography of John Lewis, who was the president of the congress of industrial organizations um all right it goes on to say alinsky's idea was to apply the organizing skills 
he believed he had mastered, quote, to the worst slums and ghettos so that the most oppressed and exploited elements could take control of their communities and their own destinies. Up until then, specific factories and industries had been organized for social change, but never whole communities, end quote. In the belief that if Alinsky could uh, trial his approach in these neighborhoods, he could do so successfully anywhere. Alinsky looked to the back of the Chicago stockyards, the area made infamous by Upton Sinclair's 1905 novel, The Jungle. There, with Joseph Megan, a park supervisor, Alinsky set up the back of the yards neighborhood council, the BYNC. According with the uh, archdiocese, the council succeeded in rallying a mix of otherwise mutually hostile Catholic ethnics, Irish, Poles, Lithuanians, Mexicans, and uh, Croats, as well as African Americans to demand and win concessions from local meat packers. In January 1946, the BYNC threw its support behind the first major walkout of the United Packing House workers. It says landlords and uh, city hall. That was just adding on here. So it was local meat packers, landlords, and city hall. Goes on to say this and other efforts in the city's south side to quote, turn scattered, voiceless discontent into a united protest, end quote, earned an accolade from Illinois Governor uh, Adley Stevenson. Alinsky's aims, quote, most faithfully reflect our ideals of brotherhood, tolerance, charity, and dignity of the individual, end quote. In founding the BYNC, and and we'll see all this in the documentaries that I'm going to play, folks, over the next few episodes, but in founding the BYNC, Alinsky and Megan sought to break a pattern of outside direction established by their predecessors in poor urban areas, most notably the settlement houses. The BYNC would be based on local democracy, quote, organizers would facilitate, but local people had to lead and participate participate end quote residents had to quote control their own destiny end quote and in doing so not only gain new resources but new confidence as well quote some of saul's real genius end quote according to one observer was quote his sense of timing and understanding how others would perceive something saul knew that if i grab you by the shoulders and say do this do that and the other, you're going to resent it. If you make the discovery yourself, you're going to strut because you made it, end quote. And we've heard that before, right? This is what you do in sales. You sort of walk someone into a trap and make them believe that they came up with the idea. You don't get all the glory, and that's fine. Your job is to sell them something. And so that's what Alinsky was very good at. And you're going to see this in some of the documentaries. Now, let me point out here, folks. This is what I've talked about on several episodes. When you go back here, we're talking about 1938, right? 1938, 1940. And he was going in there. Arlinsky was going into these ghettos, into these uh, neighborhoods, and helping the folks there organize in their local communities. Well, one of the reasons why we face the problems that we do today is because we live inside of this globalist society so if you wanted to walk around let's say you live in a typical uh you know middle to upper middle class suburb somewhere in a subdivision 
with a quarter to half acre lots of land and you wanted to organize those folks against central bank digital currency or universal basic income you wouldn't be able to do it you wouldn't be able to do it because people already live inside of a culture of technocracy but also a culture of globalism as i pointed out i think in the interview with dan on episode 115 with dan Golvach, i was saying that the people are sitting on their phone just scrolling their facebook timeline or scrolling their twitter timeline or their TikTok, or YouTube, whatever it may be. And their focus right now, at this very moment, is a guy in Russia who claims that Putin yelled at him and told him he was going to kill every last Ukrainian. And the guy next to him, right, he is sitting on his phone concerned about some Muslim in China who says he was locked up in a camp and forced to make denim overalls. You know, and then you have another guy who's sitting on his phone and he's worried about the plight of the African tribesmen who's being forced out of his city by a pack of rabid lions. You see, so people are actually living in this world, this personalized Choose your own adventure feedback loop brought to you by social media, by semantic search results on Google, uh, by mainstream media, by entertainment, by influencers. And so they have no idea what's actually going on and what's going to affect them right here. Well, Alinsky had the ability to go in and organize a neighborhood and to get a neighborhood when there was no Internet. People's focus was their neighborhood. To organize a neighborhood back then was not an impossible task, even to organize it against powerful corporations and a corrupt government. And so I believe I saw the final chapter in that. Back in 07 and 08, I've talked about on this show when I was organizing folks in the city of New Haven. Because even back then, In 07, 08, Facebook wasn't a huge thing. We had a website we would direct people to. We might have had a Facebook page. It might have been the very beginning of it. But people's focus was on local government, on their neighborhood, even on state government. And so it was much easier to organize people. And we weren't organizing them against a national issue or a global issue. We were trying to organize them around a local issue issue so this is one of the dangers that dan and i talked about is the internet and why we weigh it as a net negative on culture on society on humanity because it has driven us into globalism and therefore now it is almost impossible if not impossible to organize people locally Uh, to fight back because they're not introducing cbdc or ubi at the local level it's coming at the world level at the global level all right ladies and gentlemen so this is why we need to also look at alinsky one of the reasons why i wanted to bring him back up here because we need to see if there's any ability to take some of the tactics and methods that he had and apply them uh, to what we're talking about what we're doing today because i don't want to just totally give up the fight even though i do believe the majority of this is inevitable in the climate that we're currently in i still don't want to give up the fight i'm still going to uh, be pulled towards my drive my desire 
prepared to want a war game, a battle against the people that have waged this battle against us, against all of humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. I'm going to wage a battle against this show and take us to a short break. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. I'll be right back right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks, think about joining us over there at pain.tv slash gold, where you will get access to the ad-free video version of this podcast, the Dustin Gold Standard, as well as the Thomas Payne podcast, featuring Mike Moore, and of course, on Friday's co-host, Maria Albanese, a good friend of mine. Mike is doing a lot of great work over there. He's dissected, analyzed, and called out pretty much everything ahead of everyone else on COVID Land, the high school theater production, going all the way back to the launch of COVID Land. He was ahead of the curve, ladies and gentlemen. So support us over there. Get access to a community of like-minded folks on a Facebook-like mobile application and website where you can teach people and learn from people, connect with people, meet some really nice people over there, talk to them on the phone, turn them into real-life friends. I'm already doing that with a number of people over there at pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks. All right, let's continue here. This is another project, the Industrial Areas Foundation. So in 1940, with the support of Roman Catholic Bishop Bernard James Shell and Chicago Sun-Times publisher and department store owner Marshall Field, Alinsky founded the Industrial Areas Foundation, a national community organizing network. The mandate was to partner with religious congregations and civic organizations to build, quote, broad-based organizations, end quote, that could train up local leadership and promote trust across community divides. For Alinsky, there was also a broader mission. All right, let me just say this. You're going to see this. He actually had some very unique, unique tactics that he used when he was partnering with the uh, Christian side of uh, religious beliefs, folks. You'll see this in a number of the documentaries. Now, if you take what Alinsky was doing then, and put it into context of today. Let's say I wanted to play the part of Saul Linsky and go out there and try to utilize what's left of, you know, the religious right to organize folks. I mean, I, you're seeing some grifters do it now, folks, growing out of the whole QAnon saga. Well, you're seeing some grifters doing it now. But if I wanted to go that route, it, it's almost... Like what Alinsky was doing, and you'll see this, in some ways he was keeping these people in a cycle of poverty. At least that's how I remember it from years ago. And what he was doing is he would um, say, hey, we're being disenfranchised. This ghetto sucks. Give us public housing. And by getting them public housing, he was just cementing them into a life of poverty while telling them he was lifting them out of poverty. So this would be the equivalent if I founded 
an organization called uh, Stop the Abuse by Artificial Intelligence, right? Stop the Abuse by Artificial Intelligence, the SAAI organization. And I got Peter Thiel to fund me. And I know people say Thiel and Thiel and Thiel and Thiel. I say Thiel because this way when you guys are hearing the name and you haven't heard it before, you're going to look up T-H-I-E-L, not T-I-E-L. I want you to be able to find it. So Peter Thiel. And I got him to fund me. But what I did is I ran around and I started talking to religious organizations. And instead of doing what you think I'd want to do, which is warning people about artificial intelligence and robots and technology and central bank digital currency and brain chips and all this stuff. Instead, I said, folks, these damn technocrats, these damn transhumanists, transhumanists, remember, I'm being funded by Peter Thiel, a technocrat and a transhumanist. I'm saying these damn guys are trying to put us out of work. They're going to put us out of work with artificial intelligence. Therefore, therefore, we demand universal basic income. I'm not asking you to stop it. I'm not asking you to burn down their laboratories. I'm not asking you to put down the smart devices and stop using their technology and helping them build the prison planet. I'm driving you into the system under the guise that I'm fighting against the system. And I think you're going to see a little of that from Alinsky. And this may explain what role he played in some of this is that he was driving people into the arms of poverty while pretending to be trying to lift them out of poverty, trying to organize them against the man while he's really driving them into the slave plantations owned and controlled by the man. And it would be the same thing if I did that. If I said, folks, AI is going to destroy us. It's taking our jobs. The only way to stop this is for the technocrats to pay all of you universal basic income. And you go, yay, yay, Dustin is looking out for us. He's the greatest thing since Jimmy Hoffa. He is leading us. He he is the power of the people but instead i'm just cementing you into a life of poverty and control by the man so let's just try to keep our eye on that as we get deeper into saul linsky over the next few days it goes on to say in what 60 years later with publication of robert putnam's bowling alone the collapse and revival of american community would have been understood as a concern for the loss of quote social capital end quote in his own statement of purpose for the iaf alinsky wrote in modern urban civilization multitudes of our people have been condemned to urban anonymity to living the kind of life where many of them neither know nor care for their neighbors. This course of urban anonymity is one of eroding destruction to the foundations of democracy. For although we profess that we are citizens of a democracy, and although we may vote once every four years, millions of people feel deep down in their heart of hearts that there is no place for them, that they do not count through the iaf alinsky spent the next 10 years repeating his organizational work quote rubbing raw end quote as the new york times saw it quote the scores of discontent end quote and competing action through agitation 
Quote, from Kansas City and Detroit to the farm worker barrios of Southern California. End quote. You see, that's like a Barack Obama line. From Kansas City and Detroit to the farm work barrios of Southern California. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Goes on to say, although Alinsky always had rationalizations, his biographer Sanford Horwitt records that, quote, on rare occasions, end quote, Alinsky would concede that not all of his mentored projects were, quote, unequivocal successes, end quote. There was uncertainty. Uh, uh, there was uncertainty about, quote, what was supposed to happen after the first two or three years when the original organizer and or fundraiser left the community council on its own, end quote, recognizing that the IAF could not be, quote, a holding for people's organizations, end quote. Alinsky thought that one solution would be for community councils under their native leadership to constitute their own intercity fundraising and mutual assistance network. In the early 1950s, Alinsky was talking about, quote, a million-dollar budget to carry us over a three-year plan of organization through the country, end quote. The usual corporate and foundation funders proved decidedly cold to the idea. Successes could also be problematic. In Chicago, the Back of the Yards Council set itself against housing integration and offered no objection to a pattern, quote, of urban renewal, end quote, with which Alinsky professed himself, quote, fed up, end quote, quote, the moving of low income and almost without exception, Negro groups and dumping them into other slums, end quote, in order to build houses for middle income whites. There being, quote, no substitute for organized power, end quote, in 1959, Alinsky concluded that what the city needed was a powerful black community organization that could, quote, bargain collectively, end quote, with other organized groups and agencies, private and public. And we're going to see this. We're going to see this uh, as a theme throughout the documentaries that we are going to break down here uh, over the coming days. Uh, let's continue. Another uh, project he work on, mentoring in the Woodlawn Organization. With the groundwork prepared by his deputy, Edward T. Chambers, Alinsky began mentoring the Woodland, uh, Wood, Woodlawn Organization, the TWO, based in Woodlawn Community Area on Chicago's South Side. Like other IAF organizations, TWO was a coalition of existing community entities, local block clubs, churches, and businesses. These groups paid dues, and the organization was run by an elected board. The TWO moved quickly to establish itself as, quote, the voice, end quote, of the black neighborhood, mobilizing, developing, and bringing up new leadership. An example was Arthur M. Brazier, the first spokesperson and eventual president of the organization. Starting out as a mail carrier, Brazier became a preacher in a storefront church and then, through TWO, emerged as a national spokesman for the Black Power Movement. In 1961, to show City Hall that TWO was a force to be reckoned with, Alinsky combined, quote, two elements, votes, which were the coin of the realm in Chicago politics and fear of the black mass, end quote, by busing 2,500 black resident citizens down to City Hall to register to vote. No administrator in Chicago is said ever to have forgotten that image. Through TWO, Woodlawn residents challenged the redevelopment plans of the 
University of Chicago. Alinsky claimed the organization was the first community group to not only plan its own urban renewal, but even more important to control the letting of contracts of building contractors. Alinsky found it, quote, touching to see how competing contractors suddenly discovered the principles of brotherhood and racial equality, end quote. Similar conversations were secured from employers elsewhere in the city with mass shop-ins at department stores, tying up bank lines with people exchanging pennies for bills and vice versa, and the threat of a, quote, piss-in, end quote, at Chicago O'Hare International Airport. Now, you're going to see a lot of these tactics he used were, frankly, very innovative, folks. They were. And we used some of these tactics uh, in the state of Connecticut when we were fighting the corrupt, entrenched Democratic mayor, John DeStefano. We used to call him King John. He was a little bit flamboyant, folks. I'll get into this over the next few episodes. We'll weave in some personal stories, some of the tactics we use there. If any of you guys are thinking about uh, going out there and trying to organize, I can give you some really good ideas. We were effective. For what we were doing and how small we were, we were quite effective. goes on to say, for Alinsky, the quote, essence of successful tactics, end quote, was, quote, originality, end quote. When Mayor Daley dragged his heels on building violations and health procedures, TWO threatened to unload a thousand live rats on the steps of City Hall, quote, sort of share the rats program, a form of integration, end quote. See, that's genius. Goes on to say, any tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag itself. No matter how burning the injustice and how militant your supporters, people get turned off by uh, repetitious and conventional tactics. Your opposition also learns what to expect and how to neutralize you unless you're constantly devising new strategies. Alinsky said that the quote, uh, uh, said he, quote, knew the day of sit-ins had ended, end quote, when the executive of a military contractor showed him blueprints for the new corporate headquarters. Quote, and here, the executive said, is our sit-in hall. You will have plenty of comfortable chairs, two coffee machines, and lots of magazines. You are not going to get anywhere, end quote. Uh, Alinsky concluded, unless you are, quote, constantly inventing new and better tactics, end quote, that move beyond your opponent's expectations. So you're going to see, that's a really good one, right? So the day of sit-ins where you would bus a bunch of people over to the corporate headquarters of Walmart and have them walk in and sit in the lobby. Well, the corporate headquarters started saying, oh, really? Well, now we're going to build sit-in rooms, and we're going to treat you like gold. You're going to get coffee. We're going to give you some cookies, and you can sit in there and bitch, whine, and complain as much as you want. Now, what we're going to get into as we dissect Alinsky, because we're going to look at him from all different sides, I said, was he an opportunist? Was he the precursor to a Jesse Jackson or uh, Al Sharpton? Few folks aren't aware of those two and what they used to do. They would do corporate shakedowns. So they would claim to be organizing the black community for their own good. But in reality, they would then go to a place like Walmart and say, if you don't hire seven new black people and give me a board seat and $12 million to sit on the board, I will have a half a million black folks 
rise up against you. And then the black folks end up with nothing, and Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton would end up with a board seat and a major corporation and a bag of cash. Now, Alinsky did similar things. So as we start to pick this apart, we'll figure out if he was just a straight-up opportunist. Now, raising money to run these programs, nothing wrong with that. Saul Alinsky paying himself, if he was successful and he was helping bring people out of poverty, he was helping organize poor folks against the system, disenfranchise folks against those that were you know, stepping on their necks with a boot, then I would say he should be paid handsomely. There's nothing wrong with folks making money for doing a job. He doesn't have to be uh, Mother Teresa here. And even her bills were paid, right, folks? So he doesn't have to be Mother Teresa. But if he's taking all this money under the guise of organizing people to bring them out of poverty, and in the end, he's just locking them into a tighter box uh, and putting them into poverty for eternity, and then he's lining his own pockets, then obviously that would be a charlatan. That's a grifter, folks. And so we'll look at this uh, through that lens as well, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to look at this through the lens of taking a short bathroom break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to pain.tv slash gold. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, two more of these, and I'm going through these as you know, we're picking up a lot of nuggets, and again, I'm handling this mini-series as if I'm doing this for the first time. And so I want to introduce you to all this information and knowledge on Saul Linsky. And then together, we're going to start going through the documentaries. And we're going to start to dissect and figure out what his purpose was. Was he just a grifter? Was he an opportunist? Was his job to lock the poor folks in America into uh, eternal poverty? Uh, was his job to erode culture? Was his job to screw up and uh, brainwash generations to come into this idea of progressivism? Or was he a good guy who thought he was doing good and fighting against the bad guy, fighting against the man, and he just failed in so many ways and set into motion basically a mental disease, as I will get into in future episodes. So to me, this is all very interesting, folks. All right, we're going to look at fight. That's uh, fight, like fight with your fists. Rochester, New York. And this will come up in a documentary we're going to watch as well. It says, in the 1960s, Alinsky focused through the IAF on the training of community organizers. The IAF assisted black community organizing groups in Kansas City and Buffalo and the community service organization of Mexican-Americans in California, training, among others, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. Alinsky's, quote, major battle, end quote, followed the 1964 Rochester race riot. Alinsky viewed Rochester, New York, as a, quote, classic company town, end quote, owned by, uh, owned, uh, quote, lock, stock, and barrel, end quote, by Eastman Kodak. 
if you guys remember Eastman Kodak Film Company, right? Film, rolls of film, Kodak film. Casually exploited by Kodak, whose only contribution to race relations, Alinsky quipped, was, quote, the invention of color film, <laughs> end quote. That's a good line. And by other local businesses, most African Americans held low pay and low skill jobs and lived in substandard housing in the wake of the riots, the Rochester area churches, together with black civil rights leaders, invited Alinsky and the IAF to help the community organize. With the Reverend Franklin Florence, who had been close to Malcolm X, they established Fight, Freedom, Integration, God, Honor Today, to bring community pressure on Kodak to open up employment and city governance. Concluding that picketing and boycotts would not work, Fight began to think of some, quote, far-out tactics along the lines of our O'Hare sit-in, end quote. Well, it wasn't a sit-in, folks. It was a a shit-in. It was the O'Hare shit-in. This included a, quote, fart-in, end quote, at the Rochester uh, uh, Philharmonic Kodak's, quote, cultural jewel, end quote. It was a proposal Alinsky considered, quote, absurd rather than juvenile, but isn't much of life kind of a theater of the absurd, end quote. No tactic that might work was, and uh, quote, frivolous, end quote. In the end, in following a disruption of its annual stockholders convention, assisted by Unitarians and other assigning fight their proxies, uh, Alinsky had called on them to, quote, put your stock where your sermons are, end quote. Kodak recognized Fight as a broad-based community organization and committed through a recruitment and training program to black employment. Rochester was to be the last African-American community that Alinsky would help organize through his own intervention. Now, interesting thing. So I believe, uh, we'll see it in a documentary, they... Um, handed out cans of beans and all these black folks ate all these cans of beans and the idea is they were going to go in there and just start farting i i I mean juvenile but highly effective for the time the other thing he was doing with these stock proxies was he was getting the uh folks that own stock in eastman kodak to basically assign uh the stock over to him to allow him to get a seat on the board at kodak well we'll get into that it's in a speech he gave at a catholic church uh i thought it was highly effective for its time very creative and so um that's essentially the method that blackrock vanguard and state street use now to take over companies but alinsky was doing it at a grassroots level this guy may be completely evil Completely evil, ladies and gentlemen. By the time we're done, I think we're going to see some of that. But but I've got to laugh at this because I can't go through an entire uh, series just being so angry. And everything that Alinsky does, I'll be sitting here yelling about it. How dare he? That's despicable. When a lot of these are tactics that I myself would uh, utilize. Uh, last one here is the community action in the federal war of poverty. While in Rochester, Alinsky had been employed four days a month at the federally funded Community Action Training Center at Syracuse University. The 1964 Economic Opportunity Act passed as part of Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty, 
committed the federal government to promoting the, quote, maximum feasible participation, end quote, of targeted communities in the design and delivery of anti-poverty programs. This appeared to acknowledge what Alinsky insisted was the key to social and economic deprivation, quote, political poverty, end quote. Poverty means not only lacking money, but also lacking power. When poverty and the lack of power bar you from equal protection, equal equity in the courts, and equal participation in the economic and social life of your society, then you are poor. An anti-poverty program must recognize that its program has to do something about not only economic poverty, but also political poverty. That's Alinsky speaking. Goes on to say Alinsky was skeptical of community action program, it's called CAP, funding under the act, doing more than provide relief for the, quote, welfare industry, end quote. Quote, the use of poverty funds to absorb staff salaries and operating costs by changing the title of programs and pulling a new poverty label here and there is an old device, end quote. If it was to achieve more than this, there had to be meaningful representation of the poor, quote, through their own organized power, end quote. In practice, this would mean that the federal sponsor for community action, the Office of Economic Opportunity, the OEO, should bypass city halls and either fund existing militant organizations such as Fight in Rochester, although these could never allow the federal government to be their core funder, or in communities not already organized, seek out local leadership to initiate the process of building a resident organization. You see that? Let's go back and reread that. It says, in practice, this would mean that the federal sponsor for community action, the Office of Economic Opportunity, should bypass city halls and either fund existing militant organizations such as Fight in Rochester or in communities not already organized, seek out local leadership to initiate the process of building a resident organization. So what they were saying here. Uh, And it says, although these could never allow the federal government to be their core funder, they still were looking for money from the government to organize against the government. You see how that never works. So there's people who actually trained under Alinsky that have given lectures about some of this stuff. That his answer a lot of times to fighting government was to find a politician who would ally with them. So someone in government to help them fight government. And this is why I have just taken the stance over the last uh, few years, especially since Donald Trump, who you know, I kind of assumed what would happen would happen, not to the level it did. Uh, but he was our last hope, as far as I was concerned, to try to seize the day on things like border security and some of the other issues that he brought up during the 2015-2016 campaign. And so this is why I am post-political. And I have no interest whatsoever in dealing with anyone who is in elected office. I've had a few people reach out who are in elected office, and I just have no interest in speaking to them whatsoever. Until one of them comes to me, uh, at least with draft bills that will never get passed, but that they plan on trying to introduce or at least get out in the public, showing me how they're going to stop central bank digital currency, universal basic income, technocracy in general, transhumanism in general, uh, end the funding to companies owned by Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and others, and reduce the size of the police state by 100%. I I have no interest in talking to them. 
What what is a politician going to do for me? Even if a politician was on Twitter uh, railing against uh, COVID overreach, but they don't have the balls to tell you that the whole thing was a theater production, live action role play, I have no interest in speaking to them. I really don't care. I mean, there, there's a lot of politicians I know, and some of you that follow me on Twitter, and even over at pain.tv uh, slash gold, you get kind of roped back into it. I'm not criticizing you. Some people like to play around in the WWE wrestling, but uh, I won't have them on. I will not have elected officials on, and I'm not interested in anyone who's running for office because they're going to come on here and they're going to tell me, you know, I'm going to fight uh, to make sure there's no tax increase and the budget stays capped at a 10% growth rate each year, blah, blah, blah. I what, what is that going to do for me? First off, what they're talking about has no effect on technocratic transhumanism or the future of the prison planet matrix we live in. So I'm just not interested in it. It's, it's uh, ridiculous to me. Uh, and, and, and now you see here Alinsky holding out his hand, trying to get money from the federal government to fund these militant organizations in the inner cities, and now their backer is going to be the federal government? I mean, come on, folks. That's what I told you. He's very hypocritical. Uh, and, and, and he contradicts himself. We're fighting the man. Let's get money from the man. Goes on to say amendments to OEO funding in the summer of 1965 ruled out any such, quote, creative federalism, end quote. These gave city halls the right to select the official community action agency, CAA, for their community and reserve two-thirds of the CAA boards for business representative and elected officials. There was no prospect of a federal mandate favoring Alinsky's organizing model. The one-year OEO grant for the program at Syracuse that had hired Alinsky was not renewed when the program Cheney's began organizing residents against city agencies. The mayor withdrew cooperation. And, um, folks, when, when I was active in the city of New Haven, you know, organizing from a conservative standpoint, we actually went to battle with a community action agency, a CAA, in the city of New Haven. And one of the things that these folks did is they would be in charge of administering energy assistance. Okay, so say with oil prices real high right now. Back then, we were dealing with the 07, 08 housing collapse. So oil prices were getting real high. So you could apply. It was a form of welfare. You could apply for assistance with your home heating oil electricity, things of that nature. It was basically like a social worker type agency and they would hand out government freebies. And so this agency actually had a software that was generating fake social security numbers for illegal aliens. And so what happened was there were several young, very um, intelligent black women who worked inside that agency who came to me, because I was kind of a Saul Linsky <laughs> of New Haven, through a friend of mine, through a mutual friend, and they had proof that the Community Action Agency president was making them do this. And they were upset because their grandmothers were being rejected for energy assistance uh, because let's say their social security payments were a dollar too high every year, yet they were falsifying social security numbers to give out energy assistance, not only to illegal aliens directly, but to slumlords that were tied into the political power in the city of New Haven. 
And so the slum lords, let's say they owned a slum house where they had 20 illegal alien uh, Mexicans living in, this was very common in New Haven, uh, in an area called Fair Haven. And they would have 20 illegal aliens that worked at uh, 10 different Dunkin' Donuts restaurants that they own. There was a guy like this. And so they would have each illegal alien apply for energy assistance using a different social security number for each illegal alien. And let's say they were getting a stipend of, I don't know, like, say, $100 a month. Each one of them would get $100 a month for that one property, which would be like $2,000. And then the slumlord that owned it would pocket 1000 and let them keep 1000 And so we went undercover in the Community Action Agency. Actually, this was before I was really known publicly at the time in new haven like people didn't recognize my face i was on the radio a lot i actually posed undercover as a new york times uh reporter and i planted a story uh in another newspaper that someone was on to the community action agency for what they were doing and then i called up as a new york times reporter talked to the president and said listen i sympathize with you i'd like to come in and write a story so i went in there and i sat down with him and his assistant and i recorded the entire conversation with him and got him on the record talking about what they do and then i went and i played that on the conservative talk radio station, Super Talk 960 WLI, along with the host, Jerry Christopher, and we blew them out of the water. And we ended up forcing an investigation by uh, some state congressional committee. I forget what it was at the time. And so when this went on, we then uh, were rolled out similar to what Andrew Breitbart used to do when he did the Acorn project with James O'Keefe before O'Keefe had Project Veritas. We were doing similar stuff in New Haven. So as they rolled it out, what we did was we were ready to go the next day on the radio. So they denied it in this congressional committee. And then the next day we had the three black girls from the community action agency inside of the radio station. We held a mock trial and we reviewed all their evidence live on air. It was pretty amazing stuff, ladies and gentlemen. But a lot of this I had pulled Uh, Some of these tactics from my studies on Saul Linsky. It's all coming back to me now, folks. I'm 41. We talk about so much stuff here. I can't remember everything, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why I forgot, because I can't remember. It's time for a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks. Let's go, um, I'm going to show you here on this Wikipedia article for those of you over at pain.tv slash gold on the video side, and for those of you looking for episode 115, I apologize. I had an issue with the computer that I do the video editing on. I've got a couple different computers, and so we had to get that fixed. And I had to spend uh, some additional money I wasn't planning on. Uh, The last 
four or five months that I've been building this podcast, I'm basically in startup mode, uh, just like starting any business. And so I don't have a lot of cash flow uh, coming in here. And obviously, we had baby William, we had to transfer to the hospital. So we have extra bills for that, you know, the deductibles on my wife's insurance. And so all of a sudden now with Christmas, and I really did, uh, we decided to do a reduced Christmas this year without spending all kinds of money. Uh, because at the same time, I've got to get back to this year saving to try to end up getting a little homestead going. So this computer went down and I ended up having to order some parts. So I'll have that back out. I think episode 114 should be up and then we should have 115 and 116 uh, up tonight and tomorrow. So that should be fixed. Uh, might as well throw it in there, folks. If you'd like to leave a donation, you can at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. If you'd like to do that and help out. Few people have done so. You can leave a weekly, a monthly, an annual donation. If you could do that, folks, we'd really appreciate it. Eventually, I'm going to push that a little harder because one of the models uh, to fund independent media is uh, donations. All right, so you have subscriptions, which you could do over at pain.tv slash gold, and we have another site we're working on, which we'll announce uh, in the coming months. And then you can leave a donation at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. And then there's the advertisements, which play on the public side. And then there's sponsorships, which I'm in the process of working on now. Other than that, you really can have merchandise and then you know charge speaker fees if you go speak somewhere live, which eventually I want to get to, but I've obviously got to get bigger before we start going down that path. But uh, over here, uh, for the video audience at pain.tv slash gold, it's going to get into uh, political uh, contentions. And we're going to eventually go through this because I, I want to go through all this Wikipedia summary before I get into the articles in depth and the documentaries. I want to just take a wide, wide look at Saul Linsky, his whole life, everything, and start to see how he ties into everything else that we've been talking about here but i'm not going to cover this tonight this is uh communism and anti-communism then we have the black power movement the student new left okay so we're going to get into each of those uh right now i want to get into his later life uh because we just talked about his early life we talked about sort of his body of work as an organizer now we're going to talk about his later life and then before we uh, wrap up tonight i'm going to get into the 13 rules uh, for radicals and leave you with that something to think about before we come back tomorrow for episode 117 so this is the myth of Saul Alinsky criticism in the summer of 1967 in an article in dissent Frank Reisman summarized a broader left-wing case against Alinsky seeking to explode quote the myth of Saul Alinsky end quote Reisman argued that rather than politicize an area Alinsky's organizational efforts simply directed people quote into kind of a dead-end local activism end quote Alinsky's opposition to large programs broad goals and ideology confused even those who participated in the local organizations because they find no context for their action. 
As a result, confined to what might be secured by purely local initiative, they achieved at best, quote, a better ghetto, end quote. And see, that's what I was talking about earlier. As he was just driving them into an eternal life of poverty, of slavery. Goes on to say, Reisman insisted that it was for, quote, the organizer strategist intellectual, end quote, to, quote, provide the connections, the larger view that will lead to the development of a movement, end quote. But adding, quote, this is not to suggest that the larger view should be imposed upon the local group, end quote. The new left themselves seemed unable to strike the necessary balance as they appeared to drift in events of the 1960s, failing above all to stop the war in Vietnam. Gitlin suggests that the SDS constructed their larger view, quote, on the cheap, end quote. Far from reconciling neighborhood agendas, welfare, rent, police harassment, garbage pickup, with radical ambition, their reheated revolutionary dogma prepared a, quote, left exit, end quote, from community organizing, something that most new left groups had affected by 1970. All right. And so this is one of the reasons why, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do a series of shows on jury nullification, which I discussed here with Legal Man of the podcast, The Quash. But one of the reasons why I'm not jumping headfirst into this, uh, I'm still doing research on it and talking to some other audience members that reached out that want to have some additional shows on this. I, I just don't want to set, folks, I don't want to be responsible for setting people into motion on something that is going to just waste their time all right and and since i see the larger picture uh being central bank digital currency being technocracy in general being transhumanism i feel like if i try to use my voice and efforts to kick people into high gear to organize something or attempt to organize something that is just going to turn out to be a waste of their time then I would be perceived as some sort of a charlatan or someone who suffers from naivete. And I I don't want to do that. All right. Right now, I am in an educating and motivating mode. All right. I never wanted to be a teacher. But Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast and a good friend of mine, she told me, you are a great teacher. So go out there and teach and educate folks, inspire folks to want to learn more about what's actually happening. And then many of you over the last 116 episodes have written reviews and you've said, this is like a master class in technocracy, in what's really happening in our real history. So I've embraced that role, okay, as a teacher, as an educator. And then I add in as a motivator to try to get you to think about how you're going to not just survive, but thrive in this system or figure out how you can exit the system, or at least in part, uh, hold on to some human autonomy, some freedom, some liberty outside of the system. So I don't want to kick you into high gear and waste your time because I see that the problems are so much larger than even uh, the federal level. This thing is global. So until I can figure out, other than trying to 
push people towards exiting densely populated areas and starting to congregate with like-minded folks, start thinking about building a homestead or putting people together in smaller communities uh, until I can figure out something above and beyond that that I think is actually going to be effective other than continuing to educate yourself and others and talk about your goals and your solutions then I, I don't want to waste your time and start to say, hey, go do this or go do that. And before you know it, you're just on Facebook setting up a group and talking about nonsense. So that's kind of what they're accusing Alinsky of doing here, which I mentioned to you. Was he just naive uh, or was he an opportunity, opportunist who was really just a grifter? All right, it goes on to say, Alinsky's dismissal of Reisman as, quote, a little whining Pekingese, end quote, as someone he, quote, refused to debate with, end quote, might suggest that Alinsky was sensitive to the charge that the communities he helped organize were led into a political cul-de-sac. In 1964, he and Hoffman had agreed that the Woodlawn organization was, quote, stymied, end quote. It staggered in the face of deteriorating housing, chronic unemployment, and bad schools in a political environment that was unfriendly uh, to hostile, unless they did something. TWO, quote, would go down, end quote. Alinsky was not a community organizing purist. He saw the possibility of an electoral breakout of Woodlawn being uh, Woodlawn helping mount a challenge to the incumbent in the 1966 Democrat Party primary for the second congressional district. But Brazier, his preferred candidate, would not run, and the community organization was fearful for its political tax-exempt status. In the end, Daly's political machine had little difficulty in rolling over the additional support galvanized for the reform-minded state legislator Abner Mixfa. All right, and so I got involved with political campaigns back in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and in the state of Connecticut in general. Actually ran some campaigns. And in the end, I mean, I learned a lot, but folks, it was banging my head against the wall. I, I encouraged certain people to run and then came in and I was chief strategist on their campaigns and I helped them put campaigns together. And these folks were running as Republicans. And they had no support of the state Republican Party because we were seen as too extreme, meaning we weren't part of the establishment. And so we uncovered a lot and figured out that there was political horse trading going on. And so a particular Republican senator named Len Fasano was allowed to hold his seat, his state Senate seat. As long as they didn't run a real challenger as a Republican against the incumbent and entrenched uh, Democrat congressman in that same district, his name was Steve Fontana. And so I ran an older woman, uh, the late Veronica Cavella, a good friend of mine, and we beat him up with Alinsky tactics, and we could not get any support from the local Republican town committee, and then we found out why, because it was all fixed, it was all rigged. And so I, I quickly pulled out of the political game and realized that fighting this stuff from inside the system was a complete and total waste of time. Complete and total waste of time because what happens is the base of supporters you build up around you 
they end up getting tired very quickly and they say why don't we start working with the republicans and i said well then we have to adopt all of the corrupt useless policies that they're involved with folks all right and so that that's what happens that's what happens and so i pulled out of the political side of things and continued to fight from the outside using radio doing organizing and trying to spark uh, events to occur and using the media as my outlet uh, painting me as some kind of extremist to get the message out to a wider group of people and tried to change the culture instead of trying to change the politics. All right, this is a Playboy interview. It was a measure of his national celebrity that in March 1972, having, quote, elevated the art of the magazine interview, end quote, with leaders such as Fidel Castro, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, Playboy magazine published a 24,000-word interview with Alinsky. And there you go, elevated the art of the magazine interview. And that's where I got that from. It was using the media to my favor. They wanted me to be a villain. I would be a villain and I would get press coverage and then I could hammer home all the points I wanted to make on the issues that I was concerned with. Goes on to say, Alinsky was introduced as, quote, a bespectacled, conservatively dressed community organizer who looks like an accountant and talks like a stevedore, end quote, a figure, quote, hated and feared, end quote, according to the New York Times, quote, in high places from coast to coast, end quote, and acknowledged by William F. Buckley, quote, a bitter ideological foe, end quote, as, quote, very close to organizational genius, end quote. And so eventually we'll look at a interview between William F. Buckley Jr. and Saul Linsky. Uh, leveling against him the charges of the new left, the interview effectively invited Alinsky to summarize the lessons he had drawn from the new generation of activists. A revision of an earlier work, Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a few more of these when we come back, and then I'll show you those 13 rules, because that's going to be the basis for the conversation over the next few episodes. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to disappear for just a few seconds. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back from the break. My name is Dustin Gold. You are listening to pain.tv slash gold. And this is the Dustin Gold Standard. Folks, I don't know about you. I mean, I would assume if you're listening to me. One of the things I love doing, I, I, I just love investigating and I love going back throughout history. And reading about all of these individuals, these movements that were going on in our history. And you see people running around, you know, saying, oh, my God, if we only knew our history. Yet so many people don't realize how many things went on, how many events went on, how many of these type of characters like Saul Linsky helped shape our history, help actually shape our present and what is going on today. And we will dissect that and show you. Uh, what Alinsky did, and how much of what he did is alive and well today. 
All right, let's continue here as we're just looking at the tail end of his life. This says, the life cycle of organizations. Alinsky was confronted with, quote, the tendency, end quote, of communities he had helped organize to eventually, quote, join the establishment in return for their piece of the economic action, end quote. Back of the yards, quote, now one of the most vociferously segregationist areas of Chicago, end quote, being cited as a, quote, case in point, end quote. For Alinsky, this was only, quote, a challenge, end quote. It is a, quote, reoccurring pattern, end quote. Quote, prosperity makes cowards of us all, and the back of the yards is no exception. They've entered the nightfall of their success, and their dreams of a better world have been replaced by nightmares of fear, fear of change, fear of losing their material goods, fear of blacks, end quote. All right? So you see what they're saying there, that eventually, even if you have success organizing, you end up joining the so-called establishment, folks. You end up joining in with them uh, because you've risen to the top. You are now the establishment. And this is what happens. I think this cycle that we're in right now, that we're seeing, as I talk about the STEM graduates and the folks that are actually helping build the prison planet matrix. It's sort of, you can't beat them, you join them. But now there is this culture where I don't even see people trying to beat them because I don't see people understanding what is actually happening to the natural world and to humanity. Goes on to say, Alinsky explained that the lifespan of one of his organizations might be five years. After that, it was either absorbed into administering programs rather than building people power or died that was something that just had to be accepted with the understanding that quote discrimination and deprivation does not automatically endow the have-nots with any special qualities end quote and i know mike moore likes to use the have and the have-nots alinsky talked a lot about that you'll see that in these interviews we'll review over the coming days goes on to say perhaps he would move back into the area to organize, quote, a new movement to overthrow the one I built 25 years ago, end quote. Did he not find this process of co-optation discouraging? Quote, no, it's the eternal problem, end quote. All life is a, quote, relay race of revolutions, end quote, each bringing society, quote, a little closer to the ultimate goal of real personal and social freedom, end quote. I would argue with that, though. Uh, You will see as we untangle uh, the hypocrisy and the contradictions of Saul Linsky, uh, I think you will start to see for yourself that the ideologies and the methodology that he instilled in his followers ends up naturally creating this cycle. But we don't get closer to real personal and social freedom. We actually get deeper and deeper into complete and total slavery. Goes on to say, but, uh, but what were his, quote, so-called, end quote, radical critics, quote, in fact, saying, end quote, that when a community comes to him, quote, we're being shafted in every way, end quote, and ask for help, he should say, quote, sorry, if you get power and win, then you'll become just like back of the yards, materialistic and all that. So just go on suffering. It is better for your souls, end quote. Quote, it's kind of like a starving man coming up to you and begging you for a loaf of bread and you're telling him, quote, don't you realize that man doesn't live on bread alone, end quote? What a cop-out. 
Revolutionary youth may have, quote, few illusions about the system, end quote. But in Rules for Radicals, Alinsky suggested, quote, they have plenty of illusions about the way to change our world, end quote. The, quote, liberal cliche about reconciliation of opposing forces, end quote, so often invoked in opposition to radical confrontation, may be, quote, a load of crap, end quote. Quote, reconciliation means just one thing. When one side gets enough power, then the other side gets reconciled to it, end quote. But opposition to consensus politics does not mean opposition to compromise. Quote, just the opposite. In the world as it is, no victory is ever absolute. There is never nirvana. A society without compromise is totalitarian. And in the world as it is, the right things also invariably get done for the wrong reasons. End quote. And then we move on here, finally, in this section to organizing the middle class. And when we get back, I'll go over the 13 rules. But it says here, for Alinsky, the real limitation of his organizing experience was that it had not extended into the middle class majority. Christ, even if he would manage to organize all the exploited low-income groups, all the blacks, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, poor whites, and then through some kind of organizational miracle, weld them all together into a viable coalition. What would you have? At the most optimistic estimate, 55 million people by the end of this decade. But by then, the total population will be over 225 million, of whom the overwhelming majority will be middle class. Pragmatically, the only hope for genuine minority progress is to seek out allies within the majority and to organize that majority itself as part of a national movement for change. All right, that's Alinsky. That's important. We're going to eventually come back to that, ladies and gentlemen. It goes on, the middle classes may be, quote, conditioned to look for the safe and easy way, afraid to rock the boat, end quote. But Alinsky believed, quote, they're beginning to realize the boat is sinking, end quote. And, and, and this is very prevalent to today, ladies and gentlemen. So the middle class he was speaking of then, whether he's right or wrong or net positive or net negative that we will decide in the end of this series, is some of the things he says are very true are correct and so as you see with the case of covenland the high school theater production and i venture to guess that Alinsky would have been on the side of people being jabbed and telling people to shut down their businesses just because i think in the end he was a political tool you look at what happened it was the middle class right that were conditioned to look for the safe and easy way, afraid to rock the boat. And those are the people that put on the mask, walked around on the dotted lines. I'm not talking about the ones that were truly afraid of COVID. Those people, you're not going to change them. That was in their DNA. But those that just went along, that just went along to get along, to go along, and to get in line for their jab, right? So I think that's something that's very important to understand. Those are the worker bees I talk about that are helping build the prison planet system. They go along for the paycheck uh, because they're locked into this consumeristic, materialistic world. And uh, if I was talking about this four, five, six years ago, people would call me some kind of a communist. You're a communist. You're against capitalism. 
No, I just don't think that uh, wealth is necessarily about having three BMW payments, nine flat screen TVs, and a 4,800 square foot uh, seven bedroom McMansion when you have no children. And then all of a sudden you've got to come up with uh, $14,000 a month just to be able to afford to cover your bills. I don't think that's wealth. I think that's locking yourself into slavery. Now, some of you may love that. This is what freedom is all about. If, if you're into the materialistic stuff, then, you know, hey, that's your thing. Um, some people are happy laying under a tree all day and reading a book. Some people, they want to go get the yacht. So you've got to do what is right for you. But I think there's been a lot of propaganda, brainwashing, mind control that's driven people towards this debt-based system in this materialistic world. And so... If I did it all over again, uh, when I was younger, I would have just put my money away. I wouldn't have worried about getting the latest gadgets. I wouldn't have been uh, reinvesting so much in ideas I had to try to build bigger, better things. I would have just been putting that money away, got a homestead, and I'd be growing my own food right now at 41 and probably not have to uh, make very much income. All right, it goes on to say on a wide range, but, but that's just me, folks. That's me. That's what I said. All of us have different goals, so we're all going to have different solutions. It goes on to say on a wide range of issues, they feel, quote, more defeated and lost today than the poor do, end quote. They were, he's talking about the middle class, Alinsky insisted, quote, good organizational material, end quote, more amorphous than some barrio in Southern California, end quote, so that you're, so that quote, you're going to be organizing all across the country, end quote, but, quote, the rules are the same, end quote. In 1968, he secured a year's funding in Chicago from the Midas International Corporation to train white middle-class suburban activists. As understood to corporate president Gordon Sherman, the proposition was that, quote, lack of organization in white neighborhoods can be as harmful to the total society as lack of organization in the black community. We all live in our own ghettos, end quote. Alinsky, however, never predicted exactly what form or direction middle-class organization would take. In Horwitz's sympathetic view, he was, quote, too empirical for that, end quote. He did suggest that, quote, the chance for organization for action on pollution, inflation, Vietnam, violence, race, taxes is all about us, end quote, making it clear that he envisaged organization based on a community of the interest rather than on the dubious neighborless uh, neighborlessness of the suburb. All right, so he was going to organize them around uh, political ideas. In 1969 in Chicago, Alinsky and his IAF trainees helped initiate a citywide campaign against pollution, later to become the Citizens Action Program to Stop the Crosstown, a billion-dollar expressway. Alinsky was not beyond believing that such initiatives scaled up nationally could, quote, move on to the larger issues, pollution in the Pentagon and Congress and the boardrooms of the mega corporations, end quote. Challenging, but the alternative Alinsky warned was for the, quote, impotence, end quote, of the middle classes to turn into, quote, political paranoia, end quote. This would make them, quote, ripe for the plucking by some guy on horseback promising a return to the vanished uh, verities of yesterday, end quote. <laughs> was, Alinsky, uh, 
Was he predicting the rise of Donald Trump, ladies and gentlemen, to turn them in, uh, everyone into uh, political paranoia? Well, I, you know, I think the paranoia that we have, ladies and gentlemen, is, is well-founded now, I would say so, with the rise of central bank digital currency and everything else, ladies and gentlemen. When I get back, I'm going to introduce you to the 13 rules, folks, because this is going to kind of be the basis for what we're going to dissect and discuss over the next few episodes until we get to the return of Wide Awake Jim, who is going to introduce the Bank for International Settlements documents that he has spent, I don't know, probably a hundred hours reviewing at this point i'm supposed to talk with him tomorrow and start to put this together in presentation form for you ladies and gentlemen over at pain.tv slash gold i'm talking hundreds of documents i said jim i mean have you read them oh i read them all okay well let's figure out what's important let's rank these things in order of importance all right ladies and gentlemen i'm going to rank these 13 rules when we get back my name is dustin gold this is the dustin gold standard you are listening to pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. Now, folks, you can find this stuff if you're looking for it anywhere. Just look up the Rules for Radicals, 13 Rules. Uh, you can find this. I'm over at Vox.com because we're going to actually use this article tomorrow. Uh, and this is what did Alinsky actually believe? And so I'm going to go through these rules and then we'll put this all in context for you later. But one of the things I just want to bring up before I read these to you and I try to get rid of the hiccups I have from drinking that water too quickly over the break is that, um, is that you're going to see in the documentaries that we review that Alinsky Essentially, what he would do, as you saw by what we just covered, he would get hired to come in to a particular area, and he was like the chief community organizer, and he would organize the leaders, all right, and he would train the leaders, the people who wanted to be community organizers, those he convinced that they're going to fight for justice, and so on everything I found so far in my life, my research back then, was that the organizers, I, I, I never, I look at Alinsky, and again, and my opinions may change as we look at him through a new lens, but my opinions on Alinsky was he was basically this grifter criminal. And so he would be hired to come in and organize a community, and he would start picking out the people that he deemed to be leaders. And then he would train these leaders in these tactics, and then these leaders would go out and they would train the people in the community. And they would have different district leaders, community leaders, and they would have it all the way down to just somebody they're having organized. But what I found 
and what I think we're going to see in the documentaries. And again, if I see something different now through this new lens, I will definitely point that out for you. I'm not always right. This is why I want to take another pass at this. It's been 10 years or longer. So I figure it's a good time to review this. Actually, 15 years, I think, uh, since I was introduced to Saul Linsky in 2007. Not him, but his work. But the way I saw him is that he, he may have had one or two accomplices in each area he was working or not or not it might have just been him and he actually convinced the people he turned into leaders to believe in the principles that he was teaching them and the methodology he was teaching them and he would set them into motion but they actually served a larger purpose for Alinsky that he was not very forthcoming with that he was attempting to create chaos to have society end up eating itself alive and one of the stories you're going to see him tell is talking about organizing people around say broken sidewalks and so the people would use his tactics they would get violent they demand new sidewalks and they would get the new sidewalks let's say they would win that battle and then as Alinsky would put it, they reached a plateau on a mountain and they cleared the fog. But when he points to them, look, there's another plateau. Now they have to move on to the next thing that they're trying to get. And what happens is that cycle continues and continues and continues. And so is Alinsky continuing to make money off that? Is that part of the grift? Or is Alinsky getting something out of it that is emotional? He's setting into motion chaos and watching society begin to unravel and to eat itself alive. And so he talks about some of this, uh, especially in the Playboy interview, that he wants to see hell on earth because he grew up as a have-not and therefore he wants to see the have suffer. Of course, in another interview, he talks about how his father was driven by money and they saw things differently. So again, he contradicts himself throughout his life as well, much like Howard Scott, the founder of Technocracy Incorporated. So that's why I want to break this all back down again and see if Alinsky was just some kind of a fraud. Although many of the methods he teaches could be utilized or could have been utilized uh, in yesteryear. I don't know about now. I mean, I guess if you're interested in running for local government or local town council, you know, the board ed or something, you could use these in your political campaigns. Uh, I'm sure of it. But, uh, but I find it to be interesting because I think you're going to see he set into motion this ideological disease that is still prevalent today. And I'm going to show the connections between what he did and the progressivism that we have been dissecting, uh, starting in the progressive era pre-Solinsky with eugenics and everything else. But I think what we're seeing with technocracy and transhumanism, there are very progressive elements deep-rooted in those two overlapping ideologies. And so that's part of what I'm going to connect together for you guys and show you in the coming episodes. So let's look at this quickly. Rules for Radicals was Alinsky's last book, completed the year before his death, and it laid out his organizing philosophy in detail. Its centerpiece is a list of rules of, quote, power tactics, end quote, meant as basic guidelines for organizers and community activists. Number one, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have.
Number two, never go outside the experience of your people. Number three, wherever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy. Number four, make the enemy live up to their own book of rules. Number five, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. Number six, a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. Number seven, a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. Number eight, keep the pressure on. Number nine, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Number 10, the major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. Number 11, if you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through into its counterside. Number 12, the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. Number 13, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Okay, so I did not interject there. I don't want to start adding analysis and commentary now. This is going to become the basis for a lot of what we're going to dissect and analyze over the coming episodes. So, again, you could see uh, a lot of this kind of comes, uh, the kind of reworked rules from Sun Tzu's Art of War. But I want you to remember these. Uh, I want you to look them up and read them for yourself because it's very important. And I think what you're going to see is that a lot of this uh, stuff, a lot of these tactics have actually been used against us in a larger sense through sort of the personalized choose-your-own-adventure feedback loops I've talked about, uh, through the WWE wrestling that we watch. Uh, A lot of these tactics have actually been used against us over the years. Uh, Let me read you this part before we go. It says, most of these are elaborated upon in more detail in the book, Rules for Radicals. For example, on number five, Alinsky notes, quote, it is almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition, who then react to your advantage, end quote. And we're going to go a little bit into the book. Um, I have the book, but I believe I have a PDF version of the book as well that I'll be able to pull up on the screen here so we can read from it. Uh, We won't do that tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to go a little more into depth. I'm going to show you how I was introduced to Alinsky, where I was coming from when I first looked at him. I want you to see uh, how I saw him through my eyes when I started to research him. And then that's going to open us up to be able to start to look at the documentaries. And then we'll get into the book and we'll start getting into more details and we'll look more carefully at these rules. And we'll start to figure out what role Solinsky played in the bigger picture, uh, how he's affected the present that we live in today, and then how his tactics will probably help shape what we're seeing in the future. And then I want to start to look at some connections between some of the folks that are leading the technocratic transhumanist movement, uh, what they may or may not have uh, learned from an Alinsky, uh, Alinskyite, that's someone who followed Alinsky, you know, because a lot of these people ended up as professors and sort of indoctrinating a whole new generation of folks, and it's still going on to this day. goes on to say, Alinsky additionally lists 11 rules of, quote, means and ends, end quote. One, One's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's personal interest in the issue. 
Number two, the judgment of the ethics of means is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. Number three, in war, the end justifies almost any means. Number four, judgment must be made in the context of the times in which the action occurred and not from any other chronological vantage point. Number five, concern with ethics increases with the number of means available and vice versa. Number six, the less important the end to be desired, the more one can afford to engage in ethical evaluations of means. Number seven, the ethics of means and ends is that generally success or failure is a mighty determinant of ethics. Number eight, the morality of a means depends upon whether the means is being employed at a time of imminent defeat or imminent victory. Number nine, any effective means is automatically judged by the opposition as being unethical. Number 10, you do what you can with what you have and clothe it with moral garments. Number 11, goals must be phrased in terms like, quote, liberty, equality, fraternity, end quote, quote, of the common welfare, end quote, quote, pursuit of happiness, end quote, or quote, bread and peace, end quote. That's the final one there. Goals must be phrased in terms like liberty, equality, fraternity, of the common welfare, pursuit of happiness, or bread and peace. And folks, that that one right there really sums up the mind of Saul Linsky and how I see it today, right now. Again, he's teaching this to his followers who are going to go out there and train others. And so he's telling them right there that your goals must be phrased in general terms. And he's giving them the bumper sticker slogans that they are going to use when they go out there and organize people against the cause. The question is, was Saul Alinsky actually helping people organize for the purpose of trying to help them rise up against the man? Or was Alinsky a opportunist who was lining his own pockets? Or maybe it wasn't about money for Saul Alinsky. Maybe it was about power. Maybe it was about control. Maybe it was about using the very people he claimed to be helping to achieve his own goals, which was to bring hell on earth. And if that is the case, if that's what we get to at the end of this series, proving what I saw Saul Linsky as years ago when I first researched, studied, and analyzed him, as someone who was using people, was using the worker bees to help usher in hell on earth, then Saul Linsky is a perfect representation of the technocratic transhumanists that we see today, because they are using all of humanity to usher in hell, to enslave humanity, and to engineer the rest of humanity 
out of existence. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be back tomorrow with episode 117. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts if you can. We really appreciate that, folks. It helps drive us up the charts, and we're doing great the last few days. So we appreciate that. Feel free to join us for less than $9 a month at pain.tv slash gold, or drop us a donation at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. If you're getting value out of this show, whether it's entertainment or enlightenment or anything in between, then please, folks, drop us just a little bit, a little donation. We would appreciate that very much. Thank you all very much. Have a wonderful evening. Merry Christmas. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold. <laughs>